Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, if you've slipped in during the worship time, uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here and really excited to be continuing our series um, called Origins, Exploring the Foundations of Our Faith. And uh, this is something that we've decided to do. We've taken a break from Mark. For those who are here with us regularly, you'll know we spent a large portion of the year going through the Gospel of Mark. We're not finished yet, so we've just put that on pause. We'll pick that up again next year. But we, we thought it would be great to dive into some of the foundations of our faith, to dive into the Old Testament and to look at some of the key highlights Um, in the Old Testament. And we're doing this, funnily enough, through a chapter in the New Testament out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. It's a very famous chapter. It's a a list of heroes. And it sort of is a highlights reel, if you will, of the Old Testament. The, The writer of Hebrews is giving us this big highlights reel of all these things that have happened in the Old Testament and using them as an example and an encouragement to, 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 to get to us, to sort of help us to grow in our own faith. And so as we look through those lenses in Hebrews, the flavor of that chapter will come through and we'll, we'll get that. But we're also going to spend a big chunk in the Old Testament looking at the stories that he's referring to so that we come to a, a good understanding of the Old Testament and of the foundations of what we now believe as New Testament Christians. And so to to put it simply, I I have two aims um, in this series, two aims of my heart, and that is to give us a better understanding of the foundation of our faith, the Christian faith, the gospel, right? The gospel didn't come in a vacuum. It came in a story. It came in history, and it came to us on the foundation of, of what's already happened in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. But also, because the purpose of Hebrews 11 is to show us what faith is, I'm praying that not only will we have a better understanding of faith, the Christian faith, the gospel, but have a better understanding of what is faith. What is the kind of faith that God calls us to? And so as we look through this chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, look at the list of heroes, we'll see these faithful characters that the reader is saying, you need, to, you need to emulate them. They certainly, by no means, as you go through the list, you'll realize they're not perfect. They, they all had some measure of flaws. And yet, and yet he says, these are people who had faith. These are people who were faithful, who persevered. And he's encouraging us to emulate them. But it's not a complete history. He's just picking out some highlights. And so we might fill in the gaps where we feel it's important because we really do want to ground us in what the gospel, the roots of the gospel is, the the narrative of the Bible. I think one of the biggest mistakes we've made in teaching the Bible is we've taught it in isolation. We've picked out cute stories or we've picked out amazing stories and we've picked out these little isolated scenes. It's like watching a movie starting halfway through. It's very difficult to do. And so we've picked out these stories, and they have no grounding in God's story, the story of the Bible, the one big main story from Genesis to Revelation, and it's telling us the same story, God come to save us, God reaching out to us. And so I'm hoping that as we go through these highlights, not only will we look at these stories and and come to love them, but we'll see their place in the big puzzle. We'll see their place in the big overarching narrative. And so recap, 
the last three weeks, Jason's been looking at the first three things. He looked at creation, looked at, at what, is, what happened in creation, and, and there's a whole lot of views on, 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 on creation and how that might have happened. But the key things that we really need to hold to is this, that God is the architect. He is the creator. He is the designer. He is the one who determines how things work. He is the one who created, and he created everything good. He created everything good and perfect and right. And he looked at it and he said, this was very good. We then looked at, at a, Jason then looked at humanity and how God specifically creates humanity with a little bit more intimacy. He engages a bit more. And there's something about, about humanity that is special, that is above other creation. And although we look at the mountains and we look at the stars, God looks at us and says, wow, my image, my image. God's imprinted himself and his nature on us, and it was good. And then Jason looked at, at the twist, at what went wrong. At what went wrong last week, he looked at what we call the fall, where sin came into the world. And now the best two words, I believe, that describe the world that we live in is beautiful but broken. Beautiful but broken. You can wake up one day and have a day where you see the most beautiful things, whether it's nature or love or a child being born. It's a beautiful world, and yet it's broken. And yet it's broken. And the story that follows, a lot of what, where these old characters that are, we're going to look at along the way, these heroes of the faith, they're in the story of God now reaching out into this broken world with the long-term goal of bringing restoration, of bringing rescue to broken people and restoring the beautiful creation that had been broken by sin. And so we're going to look at the next two weeks. I, I get to take you through the next two weeks. We're going to look at three characters, the first three heroes. And the first two we're going to look at this week are Abel and Enoch. And so I like to give a roadmap just so that you know where we're going, just so that you, you don't find yourself wondering, you know, 10, 20 minutes in, is it, has he even finished the introduction yet? I'm not sure. But I like to give a roadmap. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend the, the, the first main section just looking at the passages. We're going to jump into Genesis 4. We're going to jump into Genesis 5. Look at what these passages say about these two characters. Just look at it. Just see what's, what get the, the gist of the story. Then we're going to jump into the Hebrews passage and see what the writer of Hebrews says by looking back. He's now looking back from Old Testament, knowing what Christ has done and looking at these stories. And then we're going to make some comments along the way, but I want to end with two main points, just two main encouragements for us and what these stories tell us. And so let's jump into Genesis chapter 4, picking up after the fall has happened. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So we pick up now with the story of Adam and Eve, and they now have children. They have these two brothers, Cain and Abel, and you've probably heard this story. There's lots of artwork about these stories, literature written about this. 
But we have these two brothers, and they're presented. They're the, the, the two brothers that jump out in, the, in, in Genesis 4. And each of them have a vocation. They have a purpose. They have a job. One is tending the sheep, looking after the sheep. And one is, one is working the ground. He's, a, he's more of a, a, a farmer. And we have no indication in here of why that ended up and what the difference is. And is there any significance in that? We're just told that each of them had a purpose and a vocation. We're then told that in the course of time, Cain decides to come and worship God. So as part of his worship, he brings a sacrifice. He brings an offering. He brings um, his, the first fruit of his, of, his, of his ground, of his crops. And Abel then as well comes to bring his worship, and he brings a sacrifice, the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And we're given the statement that for whatever reason, Cain's offering was not accepted. Abel's offering was. Now, if I was a, a really bad preacher, I would tell you that's because meat is better than veg. <laughs> but I don't think that's the case. <laughs> okay? And I'm not going to knock people who maybe do hold that view that this is some sort of statement about you know, the agriculture and there's some sort of reason behind this. I don't think we get any indication of that in the text. In fact, we don't get any indication that there's any value difference between their offerings. It both would have cost them something. They both had to initiate it. They both came to God and brought their offering of worship. All we're told, and we're not told why in this stage of the story, is that Cain's offering wasn't accepted and Abel's was. But what we do know because of the broader teaching of Scripture is that where we look on the outward, and that's why I think so many people have tried to find a reason here, tried to look at, well, maybe, you know, because Abel brought the fat portions, that was better because God really likes the fat portion. And, and Cain, but they all brought out of their space, out of their purpose, out of their place of work. They brought an offering. We're not told why, but what we do know is God sees the heart. God sees the heart. And that's our only space to assume that God saw something in Cain's heart. And I think there might be reason to believe that as we go on in the story, because Cain becomes angry and he becomes despondent and his face falls. And we carry on reading. The Lord now reaches out to Cain and says, Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, well will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And then we have the statement in verse 8. Cain spoke to his, his brother Abel. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The very first murder. The very first murder. See, God now reaches out to Cain. He sees Cain's face fall, and he's, he's saying, Cain, why, why is your face fallen? And some of us might go, well, because you didn't accept his offering. And, and, and we, we might really wonder, well, surely that, you know, maybe that explains it. But God's actually saying, no, don't worry about me. Do you not realize that if you do well, if you, if you do well, you will be accepted. I have not completely rejected you. I have not cast you out. Your offering was unacceptable. But if you do well, you will be accepted. There is still a chance and a choice for you coming up. And we see that play out. See, God can see that there's something inside Cain 
something sinful, something broken. We know where it comes from because of chapter 3. Sin has entered the world. And there's something in Cain's heart that's just not right. See, God can see there's a choice coming up. Is Cain going to react? And out of jealousy and vengeance, take out Abel, kill his brother. Or is he going to turn around and say, well, then I will bring another offering. I wonder, and it's difficult to wonder, where the Bible is silent, we must be careful about assuming too much. But I do wonder, what if Cain had turned and just brought another offering? Just kept bringing his offering. And God comes, he reaches out to Cain, he says, don't let your face fall. Because if you do well, you'll be accepted. And God sees this, but if you don't, sin is crouching at the door. And I think just to take a pause there, that's something we should all remember. Sin is crouching at the door, at every door, at every turn. Now that shouldn't fill us with fear. It should just arm us. It should make us alert. The the scriptures, and particularly the New Testament, call us to this life of alertness, knowing that around every door there is a temptation to value something above God, to react out of hurt, to react out of pain, to react out of something that is not right. And God is saying, we need to be aware of that, deal with what's in our hearts, and keep bringing our offering of worship. Still at this stage, though, it's not 100% clear to us why his offering wasn't accepted. But no matter how deep the wound, the wound never justifies the action. And so Cain murders his brother. Abel becomes the first victim of murder and his, his innocent blood is spilt. He's done nothing wrong. He has, he's been accepted by God and yet he's been rejected by his own brother. And if I could take another point here, this is something we should not be surprised at. It is still true today that when we bring acceptable worship to God, when we are received by God, it is very likely we are rejected by the world. Jesus warns us of this. And so if Jesus says this would be the case, it would, actually, it would actually jar me to think, well, how could we not be experiencing this? Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Remember, they hated me first. We, we sometimes wrongly expect that if we live like Jesus, everyone will love us. And we will be 100% accepted and we will fit into society perfectly. That's not the message. It's not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is we love despite being rejected. Where Cain responded and and went out and and, and, and sought against Abel. We, We go to the people who are rejecting us. We bless those who revile us. We love those who hate us. We pray for those who persecute us. That's the message of the gospel. Not that everyone's just gonna love us but that despite how the world treats us, we stand in our acceptance from God and that becomes our all in all. And that security means we can then love well in the world. In John 15 verse 19, Jesus says, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It is because we are accepted by God that often we will be rejected by man. And if the praise of man is the thing we value most, we will struggle with that. So we go on to our next character. That's the story of Abel. Probably left you with a bunch of questions. But let's look at Enoch because he definitely leaves you with more. 
Okay, chapter 5, and the, the reason we've left out the whole chunk in the beginning of chapter 5 is because it pretty much just tracks the lineage. It pretty much tells us what happens after that. After that, Cain is punished. He's, he's, he's cast out, and he goes and has his own line of, of people and starts the very first city. And then Adam and Eve decide to have another child, and they have a child, Seth. And Seth has a few more children, and along the line comes Enoch. And Enoch is actually the great-grandfather of Noah. And so who we're looking at next week. So there's a little link for us. And so we're looking at Enoch. Enoch is the great-grandfather of Noah. And in this verse, you'll notice that he fathers a man named Methuselah. And Methuselah lives to 969 years old. He's the oldest recorded human being in the scriptures. Oldest man who ever lived. What's mostly remarkable about that is in Psalm 90, we're told that a thousand years is as one day to God. And so even the longest living human couldn't hit one day. I say that not just to be interesting, but doesn't that blow your mind about God? Because like the truth of the scriptures, number one, not, should not just inform us, it should lead us to worship. And when you think that the longest living human being of 969 years didn't hit one day for God, how amazing is our God? He's just overall, he's just bigger than we could ever imagine. But let's look at Enoch. It says when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. That's what we have. This is my, one, of, one of the most perplexing stories in the scripture for me when I was younger. It's like, what do you mean he was not? Why, why didn't he have to die? Jesus hadn't come yet. I don't understand. There's too many questions. And, that, and that's the, the point. We're left with all of these questions as we look at this. Why was Enoch taken up? Why didn't he die? Why was Abel's offering more acceptable than Cain's? Why are these two characters the first ones mentioned in Hebrews 11? They're paired together somehow. And why, what are we meant to get from their stories that is in, to encourage our faith? And I think summary of the reason is just chronological. Abel's the first one to come after um, you know, it's Cain and Abel. They're the first ones after Adam and Eve. But I think there is a reason. And so we're going to jump into Hebrews and hopefully get some answers to what's going on. Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks today. He still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. I love that. I just get pictures of people running around trying to find Enoch. It's like the worst game of hide and seek ever. Still going on today. Everyone trying to find Enoch because they can't believe he was just taken up. And now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. See, this may not give all of the little answers because I know in a group of people, you will get questions you couldn't even imagine. And so it might not answer every intricate question that we have about these stories, but what we're told is this. And, and it, it might have even been something you've seen coming already. It's like watching the movie and you're like, I know who did it. I know what's going on. The reason that we're given in this passage that Abel's sacrifice was more acceptable to God is faith. Faith. God sees the heart, and in Abel's heart, he saw a heart of faith. The reason Enoch did not see death and was taken up 
faith. Faith. Now, why their faith was engaged with in different ways, I don't know. But this chapter is about faith, and it's quite clear that's the key to the puzzle. But notice the connection between these two characters, between these two stories, and particularly that word commend. Notice how Abel's offering was accepted, and then he is commended by God, commended as righteous. And then Enoch, after he was t- or before he was taken up, is, ha- is being commended as having pleased God, as having being acceptable to God. And I think the next verse, which is quite a co- popular one, actually unpacks this for us. Because on the flip side, it says this, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Abel and Enoch would not have been commended had they not had faith. Abel's sacrifice would not have been accepted. Enoch would not have been taken up had they not had the faith in their hearts that God saw. It's not possible to please God without faith. I think this is so important for us to get. It's not possible to please God without faith. You can bring as many offerings like Cain to God, but it's not possible to please Him without faith. You can bring all the offerings of service, all the offerings of charity, all the offerings of coming to church, doing the things, all the offerings we can imagine, we can bring them time and time again, but they will not be acceptable because without faith it is impossible, not unlikely, impossible to please God. That should cause us to go, what kind of faith? What faith do I need to have to please God? What is the faith that they're talking about here? In Isaiah, we even get this, this passage that tells us, and it's such a, a hard passage, but sometimes we need to hear the hard things so that we actually know we need the good things. And the hard thing is this, that our best works are actually kind of like filthy rags before the king. But when we have faith, those filthy rags become garments of praise. Then even the smallest work with faith is acceptable to God. And you see, that's the encouragement. The hard thing is for us to realize that because of sin, any offering we bring that's not brought in utter dependence on God is not acceptable. But here's the positive flip side of that, that the tiniest offering we bring, the smallest thing that we do, if it's done with a heart of faith, God smiles. God, who has a thousand years for a day, smiles, literally smiles upon us. When we have hearts of faith that act. I mean, the fact, because if it's, it is possible to please God, that's what's amazing about these verses. That not only is it possible, if it's possible to displease him, it is possible to please him. And what's great is it's not about how big the work is. It's not about how expensive the giving is. It's, it's about the heart of faith. And anyone can bring that. Because to have a heart of faith is to say, I'm not enough and I'm depending on God. We can make God smile. That is amazing. Only faith opens up the privilege of pleasing the heart of God. There is no acceptance 
that we need more than God's acceptance and that's accessible to us through faith. The same faith that Abel had and the same faith that Enoch had. But what faith? And we're told here, two aspects to the faith that pleases God. We must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. You might have noticed if you were looking very carefully, this actually is almost a mirror of the very first verse in Hebrews 11 that says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You see, the conviction of things not seen is to believe in a God that we cannot see. The assurance of things hoped for is to believe in the reward that comes to those who seek him. Do you see that? Faith has two, two dimensions. Faith has two dimensions. The faith that pleases God believes in the present reality of God and in his future reward. Reality and reward. It is trust and it is hope. Trust and hope. If you leave with two words in your mind about what faith pleases God, it's trust and hope. Faith is trust and it's hope. It is trust in the sense that we are confident in God now. We believe in his reality and we are utterly dependent daily on him. We are dependent on who he is for us. We are living out of the reality of who God is. Every day, every decision made because we know that God is for us. Every day shaped by the belief that God is at work and is continuing to work for us. That is the kind of faith that pleases God. A faith of utter dependence. Saying, God, I'm trusting you for this. Do you, I, I saw something so interesting this week. Do you want to know how you know what you're not trusting God for? Quite interesting. Look at your prayer life. The things you pray about are often the things that you're trusting God for. Because the reason you're praying about them usually is because you don't know what to do. You don't feel like you can handle it. You need God. The things we're not praying about are often the things that deep down inside we actually believe we can handle. The things we actually think, well, I've, I've actually got this. I can do this. I got this under control. Which is why I think Paul says, pray continually. Because all of life is meant to be lived in utter dependence on God. Every breath comes from Him. The second aspect of this, trust and then hope. Hope is, is future-oriented. It's, it's the certainty of God's promise that in Jesus there will be a fulfillment. And, and we anticipate that God will complete His promises. And, and this kind of faith is, is, is kind of like someone who owes you money. I don't know who's ever had that case. Someone who owes you some money. But someone who you know really well and whose character you think of very highly. That's the kind of hope and faith. It's not a blind faith. It's not an ungrounded faith. It's grounded in a character of a person. And so if I have someone who I really 
really know, and I know that they're a faithful character, and a sh- you know they're the kind of person who, who does what is right, and they, they don't often let you down, and they say, oh, Ryan, would you cover me today? I left my wallet, and you know I'll pay you back. The hope for me that they will pay me back is a hope that's not grounded in nothing. It's grounded in who they are. It's grounded in their character. Because they're good, because they're the kind of person with integrity, I know that they're going to pay me back. And so when God gives us promises, the fulfillment is not ungrounded. Our hope in those promises is not ungrounded. They're grounded in His character. Someone who is proven to be faithful, proven to be good, proven to be trustworthy. We can trust God. The common illustration is that of a trust test, that trust for all of you. You've probably seen this. Someone stands behind, they're going to catch you. And if you trust them, you're going to close your eyes and fall. And if you step back, it's because you didn't quite believe that they were going to catch you. You need to believe in the reality of the person behind you. If you don't believe the person behind you is real, you're not going to fall. And if you are, that's very trusting. So you need to believe that you can depend now, in this present moment, on God. And you need to know that the character of God is one that's not going to let you fall. And so the hope that He will catch you is not an ungrounded hope. That's the kind of faith. Faith present, trusting in God. Faith future in His promises, hope in His promises. We need to live as if, and I, I struggle to find a way to say that phrase without sounding hypothetical, but we need to live as if God is real, because He is, and if His promises to us are certain. And this can't be faked. But these two heroes are also used in a different way, in in a slightly interesting way. I believe that the pairing of these two heroes also points us to the author of our faith, Jesus. I believe that as we study the story of Abel and as we study the story of Enoch, as, 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 as many questions that might come out, it, I think there is something like a signpost saying, look at the author and perfecter of your faith, Jesus. You see, Abel made an acceptable offering and he was murdered for it and his innocent blood was shed because of it. Jesus becomes our acceptable offering by shedding his perfectly innocent blood for us. He is the superior Abel, where Abel brought an offering that was accepted and his innocent blood was shed. Jesus sheds his innocent blood for us so that he could become the acceptable offering, so that every offering we come under him is now accepted. How amazing is that? Abel pointing us to Jesus. Because of Jesus, through faith, we are able to worship God and be accepted. Enoch walks with God, has this relationship with God, pleases God, and is taken up and doesn't see death. Jesus is God in the flesh. He tastes death so that those who believe in him can also overcome death through him. Jesus, God in the flesh, innocent blood shed, overcomes death so that we can all like Enoch, walk through death. It no longer has its hold of fear on us. Sometimes it does. 
We know that in the journey of faith, there are ups and downs. But the heart that trusts Jesus knows that death is overcome. And like Enoch, we will overcome it. The heart that trusts Jesus knows that because of his sacrifice, we can be accepted. See, they show us the nature of faith that pleases God, but they also point us to the object of our faith, Jesus. The one whom we should trust and the one whom we should hope in. Through him we're accepted and pleased and, ex- and pleasing to God, and through him we can overcome death. So my cry to us is let us live and worship in that confidence and in that certainty that as we trust Jesus fully, as we trust him wholly, we can please God and know him. We can please God and know him. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online, wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.